Morning, Village Church. I'm Adam, one of the pastors here at the Village. I know I know most of you. I saw some unfamiliar faces uh, this morning. And uh, if I don't know you, I'm Adam, one of the pastors here at the Village. Uh, would we would love to know you. I would love to know you. We're glad to be together uh, with you this morning. Um, whether you know me or you don't know me, one of the things that you might not know about me is, um, is I, I love unique things. Now, uh, you might not get it, by the way, I, I, I dress maybe, like I'm always like matchy, you know, like blue and blue and blue. It's like try to always match. I'm very plain in terms of like just kind of the way. Uh, but but I, I, I love unique things. I love unique food. I don't know about if you're like that, but I love showing up to a restaurant or someone's home, or I love when Dina comes and she, she prepares a meal and then like it's sat on the table and it's sort of the same thing, but it's done different. Like I love when food is done uniquely. I love unique restaurants. I love showing up to a place and there's something unique about the environment or there's something unique about the food or there's something unique about the way they do things in that restaurant that's just different from like a chain restaurant or something like that. I love unique restaurants. I love unique places. Um, I don't unfortunately get to go to a lot of unique places. Are you like that? Um, but, but I like unique places. So on my Instagram feed, if you were like to scroll up, you'd see like all these like unique like Airbnb locations, right? Like in the world, like Babe, I just found one where, like, we could hang off of a cliff in Tibet on, like, a, a bed that's, like, glass all the way around. And, like, you could sleep there the whole night, like, hanging off a cliff. Um, I like unique experiences. Um, is that a boy's trip? That might be more of a boy's trip. Me and Luke, Luke and I would do that one. Um, so so I, I, I love unique things. I love new things. I love unique things. And um, this is one of the things I love most about Jesus. If you love unique things, you might be like me. This is one of the things that I love most about Jesus. There is literally no one like him. There is no one like Jesus. Jesus is the most unique person in the history of the world. The God-man, God come in human flesh. Jesus is the most unique person in the history of the world. And when someone is that unique... Like when you see someone very unique, you can tend to either love them or hate them. You're like, yeah, I'm for that person or I'm not. I love what they got going on or ugh. And Jesus is this kind of person. He is the most unique person in the history of the world. And so he can actually be a very polarizing person. And although Jesus has united more people in the history of the world from more backgrounds, more races, more socioeconomic backgrounds, more skin colors, more primary languages spoken, like, although Jesus has un united more people in the history of the world, Jesus is also, in a way, the most polarizing person in the history of the world. You can't just be like, meh, you know, about Jesus. You, you can't just come to Jesus and be like, eh, I really don't know. Like, Jesus said things that are too difficult and too, frankly, offensive to just look at Jesus and go like, I don't know, take it or leave it. And although Jesus is this person that's unique, a unifier, kind of polarizing, this is one of the things that we love about Jesus. Because for all the people that might say, ah, well, I'll take or leave Jesus inside, there's kind of some angst toward him. We are the people that love him. We love Jesus. And this is one of the things I love about being a Christian. I was thinking as we were singing this morning, who else is gathering together on a Sunday morning, you know, to, like, to sing to someone the way we all do together? We're not listening to someone sing. We are singing to someone together. We love Jesus. We have affection for him, for all the unique things that he is and all of the unique things that he's done. The way he's literally changed our worlds and the way he's literally changed the world. 
He's the most central figure in the history of the world. And we can say in the history of the world because Jesus was and is a real person, a really unique person, <laughs> the most unique person, who lived in a real time and a real place in the world, and this is really important. Matter of fact, Luke tells us this. Luke points to history no less than three times in three chapters. This is the third time in no less than three chapters that Luke is going to point to a very specific historical time, and that means something. As we said many times, the Bible doesn't have a highlighter. You can't just, it doesn't highlight itself, but it draws our attention to things when it does things like repeat things. And here in verse 1, it says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea, Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. That's a mouthful. But what it tells us is Jesus is the one and only unique Son of God who came into human history. Luke has already told us in chapter 1, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Luke has already told us in Luke chapter 2, in those days the tree went out from Caesar Augustus, but it would be during the first registration when Quirinius was governor. There were two, and Luke points out it was actually during the first. And now Luke tells us in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... And he mentions five political leaders, Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip, Lysanias. He mentions two religious leaders, Annas and Caiaphas. And together, these seven leaders point us to one point in time between 27 and 29 AD in Palestine. Luke is telling us that God came into human history. Christians believe that God came into human history in the person of Jesus Christ at a very particular time in history and in a very particular place. And that that is such a unique claim. That is such a unique claim. It is such a unique reality that God would actually send someone before him, John the baptizer, to prepare the way, to prepare people for this reality. No one could be prepared for this reality. And so God sends John to help prepare his people for the reality that he was coming into human history in human flesh. This is the most unique thing about Christianity. We believe that God came into history in the person of Jesus Christ, and he's the most unique person in the history of the world. No one else believes this. Muslims believe that Allah is eminent uh, I'm sorry, rather transcendent, but not eminent. Big words for meaning he is above us and beyond us, outside of us, but he was never with us. Allah never came here. Buddhists don't believe in God, and so there's no need for God to come to you if you don't believe God exists. Hindus believe that, that everyone is divine, that there's a sense that everyone is divine, and so there's no need for God to come because the divine is already here within each of us. And Hinduism believes that there are 330 million gods. And so for God to come into human history in some way would be a little hard to keep track of. That's a lot of, a lot of points in history. Christians are the only ones that believe this. Church, I hope you know this. We are the only ones that believe that God came into human history in a person and it happened in a particular time and place, and we have the history to prove it. Again, such a unique claim that God would send someone ahead of himself to say, hey, here's what's coming. 
No one was prepared for this. So what would John the baptizer, this pretty unique guy in his own right, say to prepare for the way, the way for Jesus, the God-man, come into human history? It tells us in verse 3 when it says, And he went to all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And here we see that Jesus is one and only son of God who requires repentance. John was saying, God is coming into human history, and you're going to need to change. John is preparing human beings for this reality. John is saying, listen, God is coming into human history, and you are thinking wrong about him. You're thinking wrongly about God. You're thinking wrongly about the other people. You're treating God wrongly. You're treating each other wrongly. And God's about to come into human history, and you need to know that you're going to need to change. That's what repentance means. It means a change of mind or a reversal or to turn around. It means that you're thinking this way about God or people, and you need to turn around and think completely differently. It means you're living this way toward God or others, and you need to live completely opposite of the way that you're living. You need to turn around. You need to change. And the irreligious people of Jesus' day should have heard John say something like, you're running away from God. Stop it. And if that's you this morning, I would, I would echo John's sentiments. If you are an irreligious people person and you showed up here this morning, I would just be so bold and blunt as to say, stop. Stop running away from God and turn and run toward him. And the religious people of John's day and of Jesus' day would have heard John say something like, Stop trying to earn favor with God. Stop trying to earn your way to him. Stop trying to gain his approval through your religious deeds and practices and rules. Stop it. And start placing your faith and your hope and your trust in him and trust him by faith. Jesus requires repentance if we want to invite him into our lives. If we want to know him, have relationship with him, the most unique person in the history of the world, God in human flesh. And Luke makes it really clear that, that, well, we're going to have to repent if we're going to invite him into our lives by quoting the prophet Isaiah, verses 4 to 6. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That's what John's doing. He's saying he's coming, trying to flatten the ground here. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooks shall be become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. In Jesus' day, when a ruler would enter into a city after a battle or a conquest, and there would be like hills or things that were unleveled, they would literally go out and grade it and level it. So there could be this huge, wide, open, broad road for the ruler to come in with his army, him in front, everyone behind him and around him, a very broad road so that he could come into the city. Think about um, Paris, if you've ever been there. Uh, years ago, I got to go to that maybe unique place. And and you, you, you're at the Champs-Élysées, and you can see that, that wide open road, and Napoleon would come in with his troops after a victory, right? And it was just this broad, broad road that was flat, and, and the, they all could all kind of enter in. And this is the picture here. Jesus requires repentance if we're going to invite him into our life. And repentance is the broad, flat road. Repentance is the invitation for Jesus to come into your life. 
And if you know, if you're Christian, you know that. You've had faith and repentance. And repentance is the road. It is the pathway. And if you're not yet a Christian, the only way you have relationship with Jesus, the only way any of us have relationship with Jesus, is that we repent, we turn from our sin, and we turn to Jesus. It is, repentance is the broad, flat road. And John's not the only one who said this. After John was arrested for saying things like this, like if you want to know God, you need to stop. You need to quit living the way you are. You need to change. You need to be open to the message that he's going to have for you. You need to repent of your sin. John was arrested for saying things like this to some pretty powerful people. But after that, Jesus said the same thing. Mark records it this way. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I just want to tell you that, that this picture of this broad road and this flattened road where, where Jesus would have plenty of room to, to sort of come into your life, this is for anyone. Anyone can invite Jesus into their life when, well, when he feels invited by that broad road of repentance, that when we repent of our sin and we place our faith and our hope and trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins, any, anyone can do that. Anyone can, can flatten that road and invite Jesus in. He literally says out of Isaiah, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And I want to say anyone, and if it's you this morning, I want to say you can do that. You can, you can flatten the road. You can, you can create a broad road for Jesus to be invited into your life by, by, by right now even, in this moment, acknowledging your sin and acknowledging that you can't do anything to make up for it, but, but that you acknowledge what Jesus has done for you, living a sinless life for you and dying on the cross on your behalf for your sins. You can invite Jesus into your life when you repent and when you turn to him. Anyone can do that. Anyone can invite Jesus into their lives, but John's message wasn't just for anyone. John's message was essentially mostly for people who professed they believed that they were already connected with God in some way. That they already believed that God exists. That they already believed that he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. John's message is mainly for people that have already professed some kind of faith in God. And even the God of the Bible. Verses 78, 7 to 8. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. That doesn't sound like a compliment. We'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> who, who, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and don't begin to say to yourselves, yeah, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And here we see that, that Jesus is the one and only Son of God who requires repentance from the religious, not just the irreligious. And, and I might even say in this context, mostly for the religious, not, not just the irreligious. It's not just the irreligious that need repentance, it's the religious that need repentance. It's so easy for religious people that go through religious motions and do religious things to look at people that are outside of churches and gatherings of religious people and say, you all need to stop it. You need to repent. You need to think differently. You need to change. 
And what John is saying is, so do you. John was preaching his message of repentance, like Jesus eventually would, mostly to religious people, not irreligious people. When John says, you brood of vipers, here's what he's, here's what he's saying. He's saying, you're like, you're like a bunch of snakes in a bush, in a thicket. And when that bush is lit on fire and it becomes hot, those snakes slither out of the bush and run away. What John is saying to the religious people of his day is, you're people that are trying to go through religious motions because you, you're afraid of the fire of hell. You don't want to spend eternity separated from God. You don't want to go to Gehenna. You don't want to be in hell. You don't want consequences. And so you're professing faith in something to avoid hell, but you have no intention of changing. You're still snakes. You just want to try to escape the heat. And as I thought about this, this week, it, it just sort of reminded me about some, some of my, my Catholic family growing up who would just live however they wanted and then go to confession, feel like it's all good, and then just go back to living the way they wanted the very next week and for their whole seasons of their life. It was almost like there were these religious deeds, but it meant nothing. They really had no desire to change. They just don't want to go to hell. Reminds me of some of the kids probably at, at Christian schools. Our kids went to both public and private Christian schools. They still do. And in both of those scenarios, you see it. But in those private Christian schools, sometimes you see a lot of people who just want a clean, safe, good education for their kids. And they hear things about Jesus, but they have no intention of changing. It's all the entrapments of religiosity without an actual relationship with God through Jesus. It reminds me of the guilt visits on Christmas and Easter. And if you visited us on Christmas or Easter or Christmas Eve, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not pointing at you. I can't even see you, actually. I'm just, with the light, I'm just, I'm just saying there's people like that, right, who who just, they just come on Christmas and Easter out of some kind of guilt, and they think, if I show up there, then I'm good, and I'm not going to hell. But I have no intention of actually changing my life. I want to say there are a lot, a lot of people like this. It says that the crowds came out to John, which is a similar word for multitudes, like like everyone from the city is coming out to the desert. They're leaving the big city, they're, they're leaving Orange County, and they're going out to Hesperia. I don't know, you know, ugh, right? And they're, and, and, and they're just, and, but, and they're, but, but for good reason, you know, it's a, it's a journey worth making, right? Like so, so, but to be baptized because they understand they have some kind of need. And I think, I think most religious people do. I think most people that are caught up in religion and don't actually have a relationship with God through Jesus by grace and faith, that they understand something's not right. And they'd be kind of willing to do maybe a lot to make it right. They don't know what to do. And I want to say, this is actually really, really serious. And I, I don't know, I, I was a little tongue-in-cheek just a minute ago about Hesperia, but I, I, this is really serious. John says in verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Again, that doesn't sound good. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John is saying, 
you can't just be a religious person. Matter of fact, if that's who you are, the ax is laid at the root of your life and, and, and the future does not look good. And again, this is something that's very unique about Christianity. That repentance is meant to begin with people who are or even think they are on the inside, not on the outside. And Peter, one of the closest disciples and best friends of Jesus, who was with Jesus through all of his ministry, who saw and heard the things John said, who saw and heard all the things that Jesus said and did, traveled with him for three years, wrote a couple of books of the Bible, and after all of seeing all of it, he would say, for it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will it be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If it begins with the religious, what will be the implications for the irreligious? And if, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and of the sinner? There are some of you who are right now asking yourself this question. How would I know if that's me? Like, how, how would I know if I'm like the, the brood of vipers? You know, like, how would I know if I'm the person that's the religious person that doesn't have some sort of real genuine faith? How would I know if that's me? And if it is, what would I do about that? Well, the crowds asked the same question. In verse 10 it says, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? What do we do? What do I do about this? I've been doing all these religious things, thinking that this is the way to get favor with God. And I think I'm kind of better than other people too. I mean, they don't do these things. I'm doing these things. Why isn't this creating fear with God? What do I do about this? John offers three answers. Verse 11, first one. He answered them, whoever has two tunics to share is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. John essentially saying, hey, if we hold too tightly onto our possessions and our money and we don't share with other people that are in need, it could be evidence that we don't have a new regenerated kind of spiritual heart. We don't have the heart of Jesus. He offers another example, verse 12 and 13, tax collectors. As you know, were, they looked as kind of the worst sinners of the day. Also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Essentially, if, if, if we charge people more than we should, because we can, and we don't have a heart for justice to do justly and rightly by people, well, then we most likely don't have a regenerated heart, a, a new heart, a, a heart that's changed by the Spirit of God. We don't have the heart of Jesus. John offers one more example. Soldiers also came to him. And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, but be content with your wages. If we're not content with what we have, John's saying, and we, we extort money from people in any way, shape, or form, it's going to be an evidence that we don't have a new heart. We don't have a changed heart. We don't have a, a heart that's been changed by the Spirit of God. It's not the heart of Jesus. Some of you are pretty astute, and you're looking at these three examples, and you're saying, why are all of these examples about money and possessions? He asked them, what do we do? And he gives them three examples, and they're all about money and possessions. It's all about stuff. Why is that? I think probably the answer to that question is that both John and Jesus know that the way our heart sees money is often the way our heart truly sees Jesus. There's a connection between the way our heart sees money and the way our heart sees Jesus, genuinely or not. Jesus would later say, a number of chapters later in Luke chapter 12, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A generous heart is just a sign. It's a it's a sign. It points to the fact that we have a changed heart. When we have a generous heart, it points to the fact that we have a changed heart. 
This is not a money issue. It is a heart issue, but nothing gets to the heart like money. Isn't that true? Jesus knows that. John knows that. So that's what he's saying. There's actually another sign to you saying, okay, well, I'm, I'm good on the money thing. What's the other sign? How, how would I know if I'm one of these religious people or I'm just sort of trying to escape the fire of hell, but I don't really have a, a relationship with God? Like, how would I know that? There's actually another sign. Jesus, John talks about it in verses 15 to 16. As the people were in expectation, and you can imagine that, no one had ever talked like this. No one had ever said, like, God's coming into human history and human flesh, and you need to change the way you're thinking. So people are having an expectation. They think that John might actually be the guy. And they were all questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. And John answered them, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, and the strap of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And here we see that Jesus is the one and only unique Son of God who brings and baptizes with the Spirit. G- only Jesus can do this. Only Jesus, this is unique to him, can bring and baptize with the Holy Spirit of God. This is, it's the other sign that goes along with repentance that tells us that we have a desire to repent, a desire to die to our old self and to live to our new life in Christ, that we have a new heart, that we've been changed. It's baptism and it's the Holy Spirit and it's the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to clarify, I, I believe, we believe that baptism and profession of faith and all of that goes along with the receiving of the Holy Spirit. There's not a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's a filling of the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, when people profess faith in Jesus, they were baptized and they received the Holy Spirit. That all happened really together. It's like a three-chord strand that we talked about many times, I believe, that, that's so tightly worn together that you, you can't separate them. In our day and age, we tend to separate these things. Someone makes a profession of faith, and they might wait a really long time before they're baptized. And then someone says, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And they're like, oh, I've never done that. And so there's this sort of feeling that they get of the Holy Spirit, this renewal that they receive and in the New Testament, it wasn't actually kind of, it wasn't like that. People made a profession of faith, they were baptized, and they received the Holy Spirit. This, this is what it means to become a Christian, that we're baptized, we die to our old self, we're raised to new life. When people come out of the water, we see that. But that water is, is a sign, an external cleansing of an internal cleansing. He says, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Fire is meant to purify things. It's meant to, cleanse things, to make it pure. In John's day, in Jesus' day, metal workers would work with metal, as you know, and they would heat it up, and it would become very hot, liquid, so hot that it's liquidy. They would scrape the dross off the top, then what would happen is the metal worker would know that the metal was purified when he looked into the, the bin, and he could see his reflection in the liquid metal. And that, that is the idea here. That as Christians, that we're supposed to be cleansed by God's Spirit on the inside. That he cleanses us on the inside so that the Holy Spirit will now indwell our lives. And that we would be more and more conformed into the image of Christ as we're filled with his Spirit. That we would look into the bin, so to speak, and we'd see the reflection of Jesus more and more shining back at us. And again, this is something that's very, very unique about Christianity and about Jesus And about what he told us, Christians don't believe that there's a spark of the divine, quote-unquote, within for everyone. We don't believe that. (laughs) Let me just ask you a question. As you look at the world, is it reasonable to believe that there's a spark of the divine within everyone? 
No, there's so much evil in the world. There's so much wrong in the world. There's so much sin and hurt and pain. There's so much that we do against one another. How could we possibly all have a spark of the divine within? It's not what the Bible teaches. But the Bible does teach that some people can have the divine within. Some people can be filled with the Holy Spirit when they see their sin, when they repent of their sin, when they turn to Jesus and trust him for forgiveness. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit of God does come and indwell our lives. And our lives should change. Radically, they should change. And then we should more and more see the reflection of Jesus Christ in our lives. <laughs> Listen, I'm the least, I'm, I may be the least perfect person in this room. We all have things to repent of. We all have things that, that are wrong in our lives. We all have things that need to change. It doesn't mean you, you, you become a perfect person. You just become a changed person, a different person. I'd say, well, how would I know that I've done that? How would I know that I've received the Holy Spirit? I've been baptized in this way, so to speak. I've been cleansed from the inside. I think there's a few obvious ways. The first one from this passage is that there's a desire to be free from sin. That's the idea here is that he cleanses you on the inside so that you're free from sin. That when you come to faith in Jesus for real, you have a desire to be free from sin. You don't want to sin. And although you might struggle with sin, when you do, you don't just feel guilt or shame. You feel godly sorrow that leads to repentance. You don't want to sin against Jesus. You want your life to be different. That's a sign. Another sign was that you desire to be like Jesus. You want to see his reflection more and more in the, you know, the, the basin of your life. You want to see yourself looking more and more like him. You have desire for the words of Jesus. You want to be open to his words and the things that he teaches you. You're going to get in the scripture reading plan. If you don't like to read, you're going to listen to an audio Bible. You're, you're going to have a desire to hear what Jesus says. You're going to have a desire to, to be with the people of Jesus. You're going to want to come to church. You're going to want to be with his people. You're going to want to get into a men's accountability group. You're going to want to come to the things that we're doing, men's study, women's study. You're going to want to gather with God's people in community group. You're going to be here on Sunday to celebrate with God's people. That's how you know the Holy Spirit of God is in dwelt your heart in. And you know this because you want to tell other people about Jesus. Like he has transformed your life radically. And you want to tell other people, this is amazing. Jesus has forgiven my sin and freed me to a life that I just can't even explain how it would be different otherwise. These are some of the ways we know that we b believed in the one and only unique Son of God or not. Verse 17 says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into its barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There's going to be a day where Jesus takes his winnowing fork and he throws the wheat and chaff in the air. And the wheat, the good stuff, falls to the ground on the threshing floor, and the chaff blows away and is burnt up. And in the end, you'll know. Now i got to pause and say, um, this might not sound like really good news. <laughs> but it is. At least that's what Luke tells us. Verse 18, it says, So with many other exhortations, <clears throat> he preached good news to the people. This is really good news. <laughs> it's really good news that although we are sinful people, God would come into human history and live among us. It's really good news that God would take initiative with us, that he would work his way to us when we could not work our way to him. It's really good news that he would change our hearts by his Holy Spirit. 
The Bible uh, theologians call that regeneration, that he would change a heart of stone and make it soft like a heart of flesh. And he would show us the reality of who he is and he would give us faith to believe. It's really good news that he would change us and transform us by his spirit who indwells us to look more and more like Jesus. This is all really, really good news. But it doesn't sound like good news, especially the part about repentance. To those who want to be the God of their own lives, I don't see a real need for change. And there is a character like that in this story. His name is Herod. And Luke references him, verse 19. Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife. We'll get to that in a moment. If it sounds like Jerry Springer, it is. I just dated myself. All the, all the youth group kids are like, who's Jerry Springer? And for all the evil things that Herod had done, a lot of them, added to this, them, to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So Herodias was um, Herod's brother's wife. Herodias was Herod's sister-in-law. Also his niece in a way because of their grandfather. It's kind of weird family tree, ugh, you know. But, 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 but Herodias was Philip's wife, Herod's brother's wife. And while Philip was on a trip to Rome, um, Herodias and Herod had a little rendezvous affair, and then Herodias left Philip and went and married Herod. So now Herod is married to his sister-in-law, and it's very public. And Herodias also has a very, like a, a young daughter who's sensual, and, um, and she does a, a sensual dance for Herod at his birthday party one year, and she asks for John the Baptist's head on a platter, because of this little sexy dance she did for this gross man, and he obliged her. There are many people like Herod, many people in power, we're hearing about it in the news today, who do very gross, sexual, sensual things, and they use all their power to do it, and this is what Herod did. But you don't have to be a person who visited an island or is on a list or anything like that. Um, as gross as that is. There are many people that think that they have the ultimate power over their lives and they don't want to repent and they don't want to hear about it. Herod didn't want to hear John anymore, so he locked him up and threw him in prison. And when Herodias didn't want to hear about her sexual escapades and her sexual escapades with Herod, she just had John killed. And the reality is this most often comes in the form of sexual power. Believing that we have the power to make sexual choices without anyone telling us otherwise. No prophet can tell us otherwise. No preacher can tell us otherwise. God can't tell us otherwise. Most often people resist repentance, not because Jesus isn't compelling. He's the most compelling person in the history of the world. Or even a guy like John the Baptizer wasn't compelling. Most people don't resist repentance because the Bible's not compelling. It's the best-selling book in the history of the world. The Bible is very compelling, and even non-Christians will say this. Most people don't resist repentance because Christianity doesn't make sense. Christianity makes a ton of sense. It's the only religion, it's the only faith system. It's not a religion. It's the only faith system that believes that, that instead of us working our way to God, that God worked his way to us. It totally makes sense. Most people resist repentance because they don't want to change their sexual preferences or practices. And we see that going on in our culture today like crazy. 
And I just want to say, behind all the smoke and mirrors of like, well, the Bible, how do we know it's true? And like, Christians have done bad things in history and all the, all the kind of woke ideologies about that. Behind all of that, it's all nonsense. It's all about sex. And Romans 1 is clear on that. They worship the creation rather than creator who lives forevermore. It's because it, the worship of the human body is the height of idolatry, and that's what we do. And so why all this emphasis on sex and sexuality today? Because people don't want to repent. It's, 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 they feel the power to just hold on to their own sexual preferences and practices. And it makes sense because there's one thing that has a greater grip on us than money. It's sex. And if you're not yet a Christian, you're like, wow, this guy's a little intense. The Bible talks about this stuff? Yeah, it talks about this stuff. The Bible's not, like, prude. It's not a shame. It's not trying to hide things. The Bible's not smoke and mirrors. They're smoke and mirrors. The Bible's just like, here it is. I'm just going to tell you the truth. I just told you the truth. All right. You want to end with some good news? Me too. This passage actually ends with some good news for those who know they need repentance. If you know you need repentance, this ends with a lot of really good news. Verses 21 to 22. Now, when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized, that's pretty unique, and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And here we see that Jesus is the one and only unique son of God who has no need of repentance. He needs no repentance. Jesus is the one person in the history of the world that needs no repentance. Jesus was not baptized because he needed to repent of anything. Jesus was baptized to identify himself with John and to identify himself with John's ministry. He's saying, John and me, we're together. We saw in Mark chapter 1 that Jesus is preaching the same message that John is. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is what John's saying. Repent and believe. Jesus is saying, repent and believe. Jesus is saying, remember what John said? He was preparing the way for me. I'm with John, and John's with me. We're together on this, the same message. He's not the guy, I'm the guy. Same message. He was preparing the way for me. Jesus did not get baptized because he needed to repent of anything. He was just identifying himself with John and his ministry. And, and this is another unique thing about Jesus and about Christianity, is that we have a God in Jesus Christ who does not ask us to do something he's unable or unwilling to do himself. Jesus showed us that he was willing to live a sinless life for us, and he did. He was not baptized because he, was, he had sin. He was baptized to identify with the message of John. Jesus showed us that he was willing to live by the power of the Holy Spirit like us. The Spirit descends on him like a dove and empowers him for his ministry. And this is the same way we have to live as Christians. You and I have to live in the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill the Christian life, or it's not going to happen. And Jesus is like, yeah, I did that first too. And Jesus showed us that he'd be willing to die a sinner's death for us. Something that we should have done. We should have gone to a cross and paid for our own sins. But Jesus is like, no, I got that too. I'm going to live a sinless life for you. I'm going to be empowered by the Spirit in all of it. As an example to you, I'm going to go to the cross for you. You deserve to be there. I'm going in your place. And Jesus showed us that he will rise for us also so that one day we can have the hope that we too will rise just like Jesus. I think that's incredible. And that's the good news at the end of all of this is that Jesus is the one and only son, unique son of God who lived and died and rose for us. And I hope that's really good news for you this morning. Would you pray with me?
home. Jesus, it is, it is incredibly good news that you'd be so kind to reveal to us the bad news. There were sinful people who were running away from you, not toward you, trying to work our way on our, on our own religious practices. That, that this is, that's not the way. You're so good to send John to prepare the way for all of us. You're so good to come to live for all of us, die, rise for us when we place our faith and our hope and trust in you. You're so good to refine us and to conform us into your image, that we're conformed in your image, Jesus. You're so good to give us your spirit, to lead us and guide us and instruct us and comfort us and convict us on mornings like this. We thank you, Lord. This is all good news. We look to you now and we do it in your name, Jesus.